To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, checking in on you guys. How's your week going? It's uh, Monday here, and we got about six inches of fresh snow and blowing out of the north, so springtime in Montana. Um, so I'm I'm in the office today and trying to get some work done and get this podcast ready to release. So um, on this episode, I have on Gabe Donay. Uh, I met Gabe Donay through social media. He's been a big supporter of Eastman's Elevated, and he's just a really knowledgeable guy. Um, he spends a lot of time doing competitive archery and, and tinkering with his bow, really knowledgeable there, and then also a backcountry bow hunter. Um, so I wanted to get him on the podcast and just break down setting up a hunting bow from scratch. Um, it's such important information to get out there, and these competitive archers, they, they have such a great knowledge base, you know, as they have to get pinpoint accuracy shot after shot after shot as they're pushing the limits of what these bows can do. And so when these guys talk, I listen and, and uh, gather information as I'm just trying to get as good at backcountry bow hunting as I can. And, and a big part of that or a big facet of that is being a good shot, a good archer. Like, like every shot, every, every hunt that you go on to be successful, you're going to have to make a shot. And a lot of them are high degrees of difficulty, especially in the cloud of adrenaline. And so just the more information and better shot I can become, you know, the, the better off I'm going to be and the better off you guys are going to be. So we get a little technical on this podcast, but there's just great tips and tactics all the way throughout it, just about tuning and, and, uh, you know, different theories on, on bow setup and, and, and just how we set up our bows from scratch. And so, you know, I know you'll pick up some great information in this and, and hopefully take your, your bow shooting to the next level. Um, so fun one for me. I enjoyed it. I learned some, and I think you guys will too. Uh, sponsor for today's show is TechNew. Um, TechNew, they're a great company. Um, they, I, I've learned a lot of interesting facts about their company since they've become a sponsor. Is their product was actually developed from for nuclear fallout, and they figured out that it removed the oils in in poison oak and poison ivy. And so this tech new, um, it, it's just a miracle worker. If you do get into poison oak or poison ivy, which we're we're just coming into that season now, and that stuff is the worst when you get it on you. And and I know like even this spot I fish like. Um, I'll take my dog with me, and I'll be wearing waders, and I won't get any on me, but my dog will get some, and I'll end up petting them, and then I'll get poison oak, or I think it's poison oak in there on me. So it's just an awesome product to have around. Um, It also, it'll remove skunk smell, so... You know, the old wives' tale of tomato juice and that stuff, if your dog got to, gets into a skunk, it, it doesn't really work. And this stuff will actually neutralize the oils in, in skunk um, in the in the odor and, and break it down. And so it's good to have for that. It'll remove sap. Um, it does so many great things. Um, they're also coming out with like a – or they're, they're revamping a line that has um, – like some healing properties in it. Um, it's like their first aid kit that they're going to come out with. So be on the lookout for that. But uh, Technu, just a, a great company and a great 
product. And if you're into any uh, poison oak or poison ivy, make sure you have some around. The time to uh, buy tech new is now before you get into it, not after you get into it and have to wait two days for it to ship. So um, have a bottle of it in your uh, medicine cabinet, and that way you're good to go. Thanks to tech new for sponsoring Eastman's Elevated. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Um, yeah, over there at uh, Eastman's and keeping in contact with the guys. We're just all getting really busy here and, and uh, getting ready. I know wingmen, they're getting ready to do some turkey hunting. And um, I might go turkey hunting a little bit this year. Kind of, I've kind of been hooked on sheds here lately. Uh, renewed vigor to go find some of those things. So I've been having fun doing that. But uh, yeah, we're just um, grinding away. Just turned in a really fun article um, for the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Uh, I was right to the deadline. I think I... I had to turn it in on April 1st, and I turned it in on April 1st. Just so busy, but um, uh, anyways, a great article, really fun one to write, and um, I've really been working with my pictures a lot lately, and and working on my editing and learning, you know, some of those some of those more technical editing editing programs. I can just get lost in there with the layers and I, just all the stuff you can do, and, and I've just barely got a grasp on it, but uh, starting to edit up some pretty good pictures, and, and it's a big part of being a photographer is being able to do quality edits, and, and I've always been able to change the colors a little bit here or there, like a just like an Instagram filter, like, you know, I can use a computer program like that, but I haven't got into these more technical ones. And so I finally bit the bullet and I've been working on that. So it turned in some really good photos for this new article. I'm pretty pumped on those and, um, just getting a lot of content, uh, recording some really good podcasts. I can't wait to release to you guys here and, and, uh, just, just keep this ball rolling, but, uh, it's been fun. Um, so, yeah, I better get this podcast rolling. I've been talking for way too long on the intro. Here we go. Uh, Eastman's Elevated, Gabe Donay and I. Uh, here we go. Okay, I'm live here with Gabe Donay. Um, thanks for being on, Gabe. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, this is awesome. So I wanted to get you on. You're doing... Um, you know, I'm always seeing you shooting and you do so much competitive archery and I just wanted to get you on and just talk setting up a hunting bow from scratch and kind of talk about all the finer points of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm definitely a bow tinker. You know, I've worked as an archery technician, you know, a lot of my younger life. I worked for uh, a lot of the, you know, the big box stores that sell bows. I also worked at a, a really, really cool pro shop uh, back east for a little bit. Um, but I just, I love tinkering with bows. That's kind of, I'm, I'm definitely in love with the process of setting up a bow. So I'm uh, more than happy to, to go through that with you. Yeah. Uh, me too. I love messing with them. I love trying to get them to shoot better. And, and for me, like, um, a lot of the tournament, tournament guys, they talk about their hunting bow, like it's secondary or like it doesn't need to be as accurate. It doesn't need to be as precise, but me, I mean, um, I, I, I live for backcountry bow hunting, and you know when I'm grinding out eight, nine, ten days, and I get one shot at the buck I want, I want the absolute most forgiving setup I can shoot, and so I pay a lot of attention to my hunting setup and and spend a lot of time t- tuning on it. No, absolutely, and I completely agree with you. I mean, the worst thing in the world would be to spend that kind of time, that kind of resources, and have that one opportunity during a hunting season to capitalize on a on a great representation of the, uh, the animal that you're after and have an issue come up that was caused by your setup and not yourself. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, own it, you know, that you made a mistake, but it's killer to have an equipment, uh, 
not necessarily failure, but just something not come through in the clutch when it should have. Yeah, um, which happens, both failure for me and failure for my weapon, you know, or you learn over the years. Absolutely. You do, you make mistakes or, you know, for me too, it's it's all about, you know, it's a game of inches, trying to hit exactly where you want. And sometimes an inch can make a difference between getting that animal and, and not. And so when I'm setting up my bow, you know, I, I'm looking for the most forgiving setup to where if I make a little mistake here or there, like that arrow is still going to hit home. Exactly. And that's basically what tuning is. Tuning is basically realizing that we as human beings behind this this machine are going to make mistakes. And what we're tuning is we're trying to tune the best scenario, you know, to basically miss the least, you know. Um, and that's that's essentially what what tuning your bow is, is to try to uh, try to m take your margin of miss um, as low as it can possibly be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and with that, too, there's other little tricks to setting up a bow from scratch that make such a huge difference, like you say, mechanical failure. Like I know, you know, and we'll just start with the bow and, and we'll kind of go through our process of setting it up. And then we'll talk about what's important to us and, and why we move things and the reason for. But like I know uh, talking about mechanical failure, like having a, a string loop that's too tight, like if you don't tie serving top and bottom, like that can pinch on your release and you go to release and you get a delayed release. Well, you know, it, it, it may be fine when you're shooting in your flip flops in your backyard, but then you're on a steep slope slope and you twist your hand a little bit and that release catches and doesn't go off you know and you and you miss the buck that you've been after for days because of a mechanical failure so there's also little tricks to setting up these bows tying in things correctly where things don't move and you know where you eliminate a lot of those problems before they ever happen absolutely um yeah you definitely uh definitely trying to uh to get all these very small pieces of this of this big machine you know trying to move in unison and trying to trying to get everything to come together uh you know it's a big part of the bow tuning puzzle and it's just like i said it's just a process that i i definitely enjoy yep well and if if you don't know about it it seems like a black magic but it it's really not that complicated with the bow so we're going to walk through the process today so when i get a new bow um first thing i do is i i set a rest on it and I try to set my rest so, you know, the center of my arrow shaft is going right through the burger button hole. And then and then I want to tie in the back of my arrow square with my string. Is that where you start? Yep. So I start um, all all my setups. I start at 90 degrees, you know, so I'll, I'll put my arrow on the string, put a level on it, and I'll start the level at 90 degrees. And I start my rest out um, usually about 13 sixteenths from the uh, from the riser shelf. And yeah. that's what I'll start my rest at. Yeah, exactly. So left to right, that's where you're going is 13 sixteenths from the riser, from the edge of the riser to the center of your arrow. And then you're making your your arrow come off your string. Um, you say you're using a level or you can use a square. I'm a carpenter. I just eyeball mine because it's just a starting point anyways. I want to see how it tunes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I use a yeah I just I just use an arrow level so I'll, I'll put the arrow on the string like I said there's a there's an arrow level I think Alan makes them um, and it actually just has a little like kind of like string or a little plunger on it a little spring plunger and it clamps onto your arrow and you know you manipulate it up and down your string and you know once the bubble centers obviously it's it the arrow's at ninety degrees yep and then um, and 
like a, a lot of these are just preferences to setting up your bow that you that you learn over the years that work for you. But I know when I'm try, tying in a string loop, you know, I definitely don't want a long string loop. And what I try to do is I, I thread it in with serving on the top and the bottom, and I leave just a little bit of room so it won't pinch my knock and try to pull my arrow up off the rest. And so I'm leaving like, I mean, it's maybe a 30 second, just a little wiggle room in there and I'm tying serving top and bottom. And then I'm tying my string loop on there. Yep. hundred percent agree with you. I, uh, I tie knock loops on all my bows, um, for that good knock fit, uh, knock fit on the, uh, on the string is, is really, really, uh, important to accuracy for sure. And I, I, I agree with you. I like to leave like a little razor blade. I'll usually use um, a razor blade to kind of get my spacing right on the uh, on the knock because you're right. You do not want that knock pinch um, at all, especially on the uh, the modern bows. I think you're shooting the triax this year. You were saying before. Yes. So I mean, a lot of these bows that you know have a, a, a smaller axle to axle length. Obviously, that string angle. The further you pull it back, you know, whatever your draw length is, gets more and more acute. And you definitely don't want your uh, <clears throat> your D loop knots pressing against your knock so you definitely want a little bit of play in there um so those knock loops are uh, or excuse me um the little knocking points serve knocking points are definitely a uh, a benefit yeah um absolutely yeah because if it's too tight like you're saying it's pulling on that knock and it's going to pull your arrow around as you come to full draw with that angle and so therefore it can give you funny rips through paper and funny tuning Yep, I've seen people even with with uh, uh, D loops tied so tight. Well, or I guess they're not they're not served no or knock points are served in, and they have their string angle so acute that those knots are putting so much pressure on the knock. I've seen people draw back and their arrows kind of do wheelies off their rest. You know, there's so much pinch on the back of that arrow. <laughs> yeah, that that's what you don't want. <laughs> you want it yes. to come off that string clean. Yep. Yep. So, um, and then from there, I'll I'll put a peep sight in, and I'll put my peep sight. I mean, my measurements five and three quarters from the center of my knock to the center of my peep sight. But everybody's a little bit different in the way they anchor. Correct. And uh, I do the same thing. I have uh, mine. Mine's usually right about six inches. And uh, I don't know if you measure yours. Are you talking measurement at, at full draw? Your peep to the center of your arrow? No, I I measure it straight on the string. Okay, got you. Um, that can vary just a little bit, at least in my experiences. I've seen where that can vary. If you if you have your string at static and you measure from where your arrow is at, you know, worth the bow not drawn at static, um, to your peep sight, that that can vary a little bit depending on axle to axle length. So I found the most consistent way, no matter what the axle to axle length is, you know, whether I'm going for my 3D bow that's 37 inches axle to axle or my hunting bow at 33 inches axle to axle, it comes to about the same measurement. If you do it while you're drawing back, obviously you need a, a partner involved in this one, but uh, you run your tape from the center of your peep to the center of your shaft at full draw, and obviously the height of your face is never really, you know, obviously not going to change. So that's that's the most consistent way I've found to be able to measure um, a consistent spot for your peep sight. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, the difference in string angles would change the height of your peep, and and, and what I say, too, is, like, once you get your setup, like, shoot it and feel your shot and feel your anchor. And then, you know, sometimes I'll adjust my peep a little up or a little down to either tighten up my anchor or loosen it up. And and with a bow setup, like, it is super important that you have a comf- comfortable anchor. But as you roll, like, if you have a slider sight, like, the farther 
the farther you roll down your sight, the tighter your anchor gets to your face, and then the looser, the farther up it goes. And so, like, it's finding a happy medium with your sight in your home position, what feels normal and natural to you. Yep, I completely agree. I uh, I usually, you know, if I if I don't have a, a measurement on hand or I don't know exactly how I'm going to feel with this sight or slash peep setup, you know, with the different sizes or different models of sight or whatnot, um, I usually, you know, close my eyes and I'll draw back and anchor, you know, four or five times with my eyes closed, open my eyes. And if I have good alignment, even then I'll usually tie my peep sight in just with kind of a temporary knot. And as I actually get outside, shoot with outside light and actually, you know, adjust my slider to the bottom and shoot long distances and stuff like that, I'll end, I usually end up moving my peep sight a little bit to accommodate those kinds of things. And then I'll permanently tie it in. Oh yeah, that's a good move. Yeah, I'll leave uh you I I'll even leave mine in there loose and shoot with it a little bit and then move it. You know, it doesn't seem to move in the string. No, no. There's there's a lot of uh especially at static, there's a lot of tension on the string. It shouldn't move too much. Yep. Um so yeah, and then I as far as um peep size, like um for me, it's all about, uh, you know, and we talked about this earlier, but um, I line up my peep with my site housing instead of centering the, the site. Um, yeah, I think it's a better way to go to line it up with the housing. And so for me, my peep site size is all about lining up my site perfectly, you know, that those two line up, um, you know, in, you know, it's going to be different in all lighting, but in most lighting, I want it to line up perfectly with my housing. So for me, I shoot like a three sixteenths, a five thirty second, somewhere in there seems to work pretty good for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a, I'm a housing center or two. I, uh, I'm definitely not a big fan of centering the pin. I know it works for some people. It, I'm not one of those people it works for. Uh, but I actually, in my hunting bow right now, I'm, uh, I'm running a real, I don't actually have, a, a dovetail mount on my side. I actually am running a site that's got a little bit, um, shorter rail on it. So I'm actually running a quarter and that, that eclipses my, my sight picture pretty well. But yeah, with those dovetail sights on most sliders nowadays, you know, you can, um, adjust that slider out, you know, incrementally to perfectly eclipse with the peep site that you feel comfortable running. Obviously the, the narrower the peep site, you know, the, the smaller margin of error that you get in there. So ideally, yeah, you do, you know, want to get a a smaller peep if you can see through it. But, um, you know, at the same time, having your, your sight way out does have a little bit of disadvantage too. So it all, you know, it all meets in the middle. It does. Well, and, um, well, and I think you're right. I, you know, uh, along with saying that, that a smaller peep is more accurate, the, the larger peep you can run is going to give you the most light in a hunting scenario. And so, like, I think maybe your draw length is just a touch longer than me. I don't have to run my sight all the way out, but I can't make that quarter fit mine. I've got too much airspace in there. And so that's why I've got to size down is just to line up. But I bet you it's because you're a couple inches longer than I am. Yeah, I shoot about a 29-inch draw length. I'm not sure where you yep. sit. Draw 26 length. and a half to 27, depending on the bow. Gotcha. Yep. That, that's probably your difference right there. Yeah, that, that does make a make a pretty big difference in, in sight picture for sure. Yep. But I'm with you. You definitely want those two to line up. It's so important for, for shots, and especially as you start stepping back to longer yardages, that that housing and that your peep, that they line up as good as they can. And different lighting, they are going to be different. What if it's sunny? It's, uh, you know, you're going to have more of a little halo around it. And if it's cloudy or overcast, it should fit about perfect or pretty tight. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, with my hunting bow, you know, I'm running a quarter inch and you, you alluded to it yourself. You know, I mean, in hunting, you can go from a, a very, very wide variety of lighting situations where 
Whereas like on my indoor bow, I know that I'm going to be in a well-lit inside room and I run a 3 peep, you know, with my sight bar extended, you know, not quite as far as it'll go, but pretty close. So, you know, it does. It, it, it depends a lot on what kind of lighting you know you're going to get in a given situation. And just for me, I know with a quarter-inch peep, it doesn't matter if it's dawn or dusk, you know, I'm going to be able to see through it without mm-hmm. straining or having to really search for it. Yep, I'm with you. Um, so, so far, we're pretty similar in our setups. Um, so, okay, so we got our rest on there. Um, you know, we've got our serving tie, or we've got our string loop tied in. We've got our peep in. Now we're going to mount our sight to our bow. Um, now, th- this is where I really pay attention to detail is mounting my sight to my bow, and I know you do too. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a, a, a really crucial part of, uh, of accuracy is, is, is setting up your sight, especially if you're running a, a slider site like most of us out west, you know, hunters obviously are. Yeah, and so um, what you got to do is you got to set your axles on your uh, on your site. You know, you want to set your first axle, or you want to, or your first axis on your bow. Like what I try to do is I try to level my bow first. So I'll put it on a four foot level in a door jam. So you're gonna get some redneck tuning here, Gabe. You're gonna like this. <laughs> but um, I put it in a door jam on a four foot level, and what I'm trying to level is each pocket of my limbs. And once I have my bow totally level, then what I do is I take a bullet level and I throw a level on my sight housing. And usually your sight housing will have a, a flat spot right there where you can set that right on your sight and be able to adjust it to get your sight housing perfectly level. Yep, I, I start out with a, a pretty similar similar process. Um, I have a bow. I'm you know I I have a bow vice at home, so I'm kind of kind of lucky in that regard. Um, so I'll, I'll put my bow in the vice. And I have a, a string level that I'll clip onto the string that actually, you know, will show, you know, again, a bubble level. And then as a secondary level, either on usually the cable slide or the string stop, because usually those are pretty pretty perfectly level as well. And I'll clip the same one that I use for the arrow uh, onto either the, the cable guard or the, uh, the string stop, just as two uh, points of reference to make sure that that bow is sitting in that vise. Um level up and down wise, I suppose, you know, vertically. Yep. That makes um, sense. And then, and then that's where I'll, uh, I'll put my, my sight leveler, uh, onto my, um, onto like the, uh, on my slider site, it's, uh, I'll put it on the rail in which the sight housing slides up and down. I'll find a nice flat spot to mount it on there. And then usually, you know, it's, it's very, very rare that I throw that on there and the first axis is actually money from the start. So, um, you know, even on that site level, the bubble will either be, you know, obviously a little to the right or a little to the left, and I'll adjust that. And you know, usually that's I'll call that my first axis. Yep. Um, yeah. So that's exactly. I level my bow. I level the site housing or the rail. I think I'm the same way. Level the rail, and then I'll also level the bubble inside the site to make sure that's level. And what you're doing is yep. you're taking away any left or right misses. You're, you're just ensuring that your slider site, or even if you're shooting like a multiple pin site, you're ensuring that the top pin and the bottom pin are in line so you so you don't get any left or right misses. So it's a crucial step to setting up a site that, that really helps – um, remedy, you know, that it, it's, it's getting through that and setting it correctly. And then you don't have problems later. It is. I've seen a lot of people come into a shop, um, with the problem that, Oh, you know, Hey, I have my bow sighted in and at 20 and 30 yards, I'm hitting dead middle. But as I go out to 50, 60, 70, 80, you know, however many yards I'm shooting further to the left 
and I can't figure out why. And most people think it's a tuning issue or a rest issue. And nine times out of ten, I've been able to level the bow up, throw a, a sight leveler on there, and see that their first axis is off to the left, you know, causing that that increasingly further left arrow the further distance they go out. Obviously, with that slider, if your if your sight rail is canted to the left, obviously as you move your sight down that rail, um, the bubble level in the sight itself is still going to say it's level, but it's actually sloping down to that left side. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm I'm the same process. So once I get that set up, I I wait to set um, you know your I I wait to set up hills and steep shots until later. I just get my sight on there and I make sure my axes are right. And then for me, I've shot enough downhill that I know my third axis. I know I have to crank the sight all the way to the left. And so I just move mine there, but I proof it later on my third axis to make sure, you know, I'm good up and downhill. And that's a really tough one to explain on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I've heard it with hinges of a door, but basically, you know, as you start to aim downhill, even though everything was set up on your first axis correctly, as you lean downhill, you know, you start shooting to the right. And so you have to adjust that or, or it could be to the left too. It's all about your grip and how the bow aims down, but, um, definitely shooting in steep country. It's really important that you test that. Yeah, hundred percent. And especially, you know, out West where, where we do the, the majority of our hunting, uh, you know, it's very, very rare, at least in, in my cases, where it seems like I get a perfectly level shot. So you're definitely going to be shooting up or shooting down, and you definitely want your sight to, uh, to you know, show you that you're holding true level when that when that shot arises. Yep. And there's ways you can test it and kind of set it, um, you know, by hanging a string, and then, you know, and you that's can... that's the way I do it. Okay. I, I, I hang a string. Yep. So you can hang a string, and then you can draw back. You can make sure you're your 20 and your 60 pin are on it, and then you lean down, you still make sure that, you know, your pins line up on that string, um, but you'll find as you start aiming down that you'll have to move your, your axis a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I keep the, uh, the sight level on the rail itself just to kind of, uh, I guess, reassure myself that, that everything's still in line. So if I can, if I can draw up that string and my sight level shows level, and then I look back and the, 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 when I'm saying the sight level, I guess, I mean the, the bubble that's actually built into the sight itself, whereas the sight leveler that I've put on to check my axes, I'll look back at it just to make sure that's still showing level as well. Oh, that makes, makes sense. Uh, so you're not canting your bow as you're aiming down the string. Correct. Just so I have two points of reference. So if my, like I said, if my, integrated bubble level is showing level and the mounted sight level that i have on is also showing level it's just a reassurance on my part saying that my system is in line yep um yeah and then i i just always like to proof it too it's um you'd hate to get a shot and execute a money shot and have something go wrong on your bow and end up hitting that animal left or right it'd be just be horrible no absolutely so yeah no i i do a lot of uh with my hunting bow, I mean, obviously, I do a lot of competitive 3D tournaments and stuff like that that I will take a target bow to. But I try to make time definitely out of my schedule, especially at least local shoots, to take my hunting bow j- so I can get out and shoot steep angles um, up and down at 3D targets. It, again, just like you were saying, to to kind of proof my my leveling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, okay, so we've got the sight on there now. Um, you know, most guys are shooting a slider sight. Uh, how do you sight in your slider sight? I actually try to get as much range as I can out of my slider sight just because I, I like to practice a little bit further out than, uh, than I 
I would actually usually shoot in a hunting scenario. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll adjust my, my, my sight itself as high up on the bow as I can and try to get a 20 mark is, you know, usually my first mark on my slider site, you know, 20 yards, like most people's first pin on a fixed pin site. Um, so that I can get the most amount of, of arrow clearance out of it. I try to, like I said, make that 20 mark as close to the top as I can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also if it's a multi-pin slider, like I shoot, um, you know, a, a five pin slider. So I've got my 20 through 60 all the time when I'm at my 60 home position, I make my lowest pin. My 60 is my mover pin and I can reel that up to 20 or down as low as it goes until it hits the arrow. But yeah, I kind of adjust my 60 pin just off the level a little bit enough to where I can aim at an animal really well and then kind of set my pins from there. You know, I, I wasn't sure if you shot a multi-pin or a single pin. I actually do shoot a multi-pin on my hunting setup as well. It's a three-pin, so I have 20 through 40 heads up, and that's and that's actually a great point that you made. I also try to uh, lower my pins a little bit in the sight housing just so I do have – I don't have to look up to try to catch my pins and then kind of try to look back down to catch my level. So I do try to try – to, uh, because even though even if you're if, – even if your sight housing and your peep sight eclipse really, really well – most times, if, if those pins sit a little bit higher in the uh, in the side itself, you kind of catch yourself having to look up at the pins and look down at the level just to kind of reaffirm yourself. So I do try to get those pins a little bit lower in the housing just so I can keep a a steady watch on both my pins and my level and my shot sequence. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't really think about that, but yeah, you almost want to see your level. You know, it's second. You want to see your level as you're aiming, to where you don't have to look, um, you know, back up at your pin and down at your level. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, just something, something I picked up. Uh, I, you know, I have no idea where I even heard it. It definitely wasn't something I came up with on my own, but just. Somewhere down the line, I'd heard that somebody did that and thought, man, that makes a lot of sense. So I've been doing it ever since. Oh, isn't it amazing when you're hunting in the mountains and you go to draw back and how out of level your bow can be? Like on a hillside, you look at it and then you've got to lean way over. It feels like you're leaning off the mountain, you know, but it, it's so wild, like how important that level is in steep country. Oh, it's insanely, insanely crucial. It's like I said, especially, as, uh, you know, with with more distance the more distance you add the more crucial it is i mean if you have a even just your sight being a little bit out of level on on the second or third axis i mean it, at a shot like 60 or 70 yards that could translate to as much as as 10 inches either way yeah easy yeah i'm it's with you yeah, and um, I play with my bubble a lot, like in the wind. Um, you know, I'll lean my bubble all the way into the wind, and I learn how to shoot that way so I can compensate for the wind drift my arrow's getting because uh, I live in a windy spot. And so, you know, you're you're trying to hit the middle of the target, but I'll lean and camp my bow all the way over till the level hits the side, and then it'll shoot right in the middle with wind drift. So I play around with that too. That's that's actually really interesting. And a, a lot of the pros that I've talked to on the 3D circuit, you know, I when we talk about shooting in windy situations, there's two ways to go about it. And it sounds like you're a bubble in person. So the, so one of the ways is, is you hold your pin still on what you want to hit and you bubble into the wind. Um, and that's and it seems to be a 50 50 split. It seems like most of the pros, they either do want to hold their pin on what they're trying to hit and bubble what they call bubbling into the wind or they you know try to level their sight and then hold off a little bit of distance to, you know, kind of have their arrow or the, it's not so much their arrow is, is, you know, arrow diameters are so thin nowadays. They're not, you know, as affected by the wind, but more or less to give yourself a little bit of play to get your bow pushed around. 
but uh, that's interesting that you bubble into the wind. I I do the same thing. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's such a great tool. It um, yeah, it's amazing how much you can account for. And you know, even with these thin diameter arrows, I still get quite a bit of wind drift. And especially as you start getting out to the fifty, sixty, seventy range, you know, that you can get a a foot of wind drift. I mean, is is about a five mile an hour wind or an eight mile an hour wind. I mean, it's crazy how far that thing will drift. It's with the fletchings and with the broadhead and with the arrow and the whole deal. Like, um, I can get quite a bit of drift out of mine if I got full value. Oh yeah, yeah. Fletchings and broadheads will definitely definitely play into that a lot. Um, as far as as far as wind drift goes, uh, you're absolutely right there. Yep. Um, okay, so. Where are we at? We've got our rest on. We've got our string loop tied in. We've got our sight on. We've talked about sighting in our sight, but we haven't even we haven't uh, tuned our bow. So I go through like after I get everything mounted on, and um, the first thing I want to do is is shoot the bow and wearing the string a little bit, and I'm trying to get my peep to open up perfectly for me. And it seems like you know your knock will wear a groove. Right there, to, and and also, you know, your your people rotate a little bit as the string stretch. So I want to shoot a few shots, and I want to get my peep. So when I draw back, it's completely ninety degrees to my eye open. Yep. Nope. That's a that's a big thing. Is kind of training your string in essence to to come to bring the peep sight back to the angle that you want it at. That's a that's definitely something that that everybody setting up a new bow fights for at least a little while. Um, you also brought up something interesting too with the uh, with the knot groove. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I might, might've caught that wrong, but, uh, at least with, with my setups, I, I, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but if you, if you knock an arrow and you grab your serving, you know, kind of above and below, even with your, your knock points tied in and your, and your D loop on, you actually should be able to turn your string, um, side to side with your arrow knocked and your arrow should still basically stay on the rest. Like if you're, if you grab your string and you twist it right to left, or you know, clockwise and counterclockwise, however you want to look at it. Um, you you actually want your knock to fit loose enough in there to where the arrow doesn't want to go left or right. It kind of just wants to stay where it's at. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely correct. Um, yeah, it doesn't really wear a groove so much in there. I guess that's what I stated, but it kind of um, like the string gets memory, and you so you want to keep on that peep to make sure that you got everything rotating right, so it's opening correctly. And it seems like. I don't. It seems like after you shoot that bow a little bit, it has its spot, and then if you go twisting strings, it moves quite a bit. And so, like, um, it, I usually tw- twist from the bottom since my peep sight's further away, and so those twists have smaller movements onto the peep, and then try to get it so it's opening to ninety gr- degrees, which is usually facing away from you when your string is lax just a little bit, right? Yep. 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 I I find the same thing usually. Yep. So um, you want to set that peep so it's opening correctly, kind of wear in your strings, and just get the few shots or the first few shots out of that bow. Um, and, and then I pull out the paper tuner is how I go about tuning mine. And, and my favorite method, do it from multiple different distances, and I shoot through paper, and I, I'm really trying to find the most forgiving rip I can. I mean, you definitely want to bullet hole every shot, but you'll find that you get a little left rip or a little right rip, or you know, uh, uh, you definitely want to test more than one arrow to uh, shooting in there, and you want to get the best, most consistent rip closest to a bullet hole you can get with every shot. I, I completely agree there. Um, I start out with paper tuning too. So usually what I'll do is once I have my my arrow picked out, and that's 
I don't know if you want to dive into arrows separately because usually by this, usually in, in my order of things, you know, once I get everything kind of set up, I, my next thing is kind of plotting my arrow length and spine and stuff like that. But uh, if we just want to talk about tuning right now, um, what I what I do is like I said, just like you, I I paper tune my bow, but I'll paper tune it really really close. Like I'm talking probably about three feet. And the reason I'm so close to the paper is I actually don't want the arrow to really oscillate because I'm not at that distance. I'm not so concerned about necessarily what the arrow is doing because as long as it's not grossly overspined or grossly underspined, nothing crazy. The arrow's not going to have time because it's, you know, I'm at 30 inches away from the bow. It really just barely got off the string. You know, it's not really going to have time to shimmy or oscillate. So what I'm trying to figure out there is if the bow likes where everything's set. So if I get a tear that close, it's it has something to do with like cam timing, uh, maybe tiller, um, you know, knock point height, or the rest isn't you know quite center with what where the bow wants to cast the arrow. Um, so that that first close rip is is more telling me what my bow is doing uh, opposed to what the arrow's doing. Oh, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and I mean, you're right. Like, the arrow choice makes such a big difference in how that bow shoots. So I think we can dive into it a little bit with spine and length. Like, I think it'd be a good thing to touch on because I know when I'm building my bow, like, that's the first thing I'm doing is looking at my arrow cut, and I'm trying to get that arrow spine perfectly so it reacts perfectly with the bow I'm shooting. Yep, and this... <laughs> This is kind of just something I've done over the years. Um, I I shoot a an ACC arrow, uh, so I don't I don't know if uh, you know if this is definitely kind of at your own risk with carbon shafts. But what I what I usually do starting off my build with my arrows is uh, I use hot melt, uh, a really really low temperature hot melt, and I'll I'll start my arrow shaft a little bit longer than I think you know I need. And I'll glue in my insert there with, like I said, really, really low temperature hot melt. And uh, I'll play with lengths and point weights from there and try to establish, you know, kind of what what shaft is working for me. You know, if I get a if I get a, a, a tear that indicates that, you know, the arrow length or the uh, the arrow's a little underspined, you know, I can I can play with point weight or, you know, it, usually it usually underspined. Um, uh, I can cut a little bit more off the arrow shaft, which I kind of planned on doing anyway, being that I started out with the arrow a little bit longer than I thought I needed. So usually that's my first go-to is if I, I get a tear that's indicative of a of a, a arrow that's that's a little underspined, I'll go to uh, you know and cut a half inch to an inch off of it, put the insert back in with hot melt, and shoot it again, and you know kind of manipulate the arrow length slash stiffness from there. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to go about it. Um, gosh, I you know I use that archer's advantage, and I just like a like a, a dummy in my numbers in there, my point weight, I, uh, my poundage, and kind of enter it all in there, and then it kind of tells me like in a four hundred spine, this is the perfect cut, the perfect reaction. I I've just had really good luck with it, and so you know I I really haven't messed with it that much, other than just plugging my numbers in, cutting the shaft, and then really liking how it reacts to the bow and trusting the system. So I use that Archer's Advantage, that computer program. So many cool things you can do. Enter in all my information, and then I look at the spine and try to cut. And I'm always trying to, 
I'm trying to shoot the shortest arrow I can. So I want to shoot it just an inch past my rest or um, it, the shorter your arrow, the less wind drifts it, it's going to get no matter what your draw length is. And so for me, I always try to shoot like a shorter arrow or, or as small as weak a spine as I can for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Archer's Advantage is a, is a great program and it gives you great information. I think it's just the, you know, the kind of tinkering part of my brain that like, I, I want to come to these deductions, you know, on my own and I want to try to cut, you know, even quarter inches here and there just to, you know, in my mind, you know, it may be, it very, very well might be placebo, but in my mind, like I've done everything. I've tried everything. I've tried all the point weights. I've tried all the lengths. I know that this is what's working, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. So from there, like once we have our arrow and we found one that's reacting good to our bow, we found our cut and, um, you know, we, we start shooting. So we're paper tuning. You said you start at three feet and then you work back from there. Yep. So like I said, I'll start it, I'll start at three feet. And, and like I said, with the arrow having such a short distance from being out of the bow to the paper, it really, like I said, unless it's grossly underspined, it really doesn't have time to oscillate. So the, the rip that you might get through paper at that distance isn't usually going to be an arrow problem. It's more, like I said, the bow being, you know, wh what your bow is doing is a system. So your can like I said, your cams could be out of sync. Uh, you could just be torquing the grip that, you know, I mean, you definitely have to, you know, be cognizant of that, that you're not putting a, a ton of torque on your grip. Um, it could be, like I said, the rest isn't perfectly in line for where that bow wants to shoot down the center. Uh, it could be, tiller it could be it could be a number of things but but like i said mostly that rules out for me uh the arrow movement and that just tells me okay something in the bow as a system is kind of awry so like i said i'll check my timing on my draw board make sure my cams are timed good um if that's not the issue i'll check my grip shoot it again okay still got the same tear so it's probably not my grip um you know so at that point it's i'll move the rest but i'll move the rest within reason um I don't, I don't like to go too far out of that. Like I said, that 13 16th where I start, you know, I'll go as much as I'd say, maybe, maybe up to a quarter of an inch either way. But I, I feel like anything beyond that is kind of unacceptable. Like there's no reason that the bow should want to shoot, you know, uh, essentially a bullet hole with the rest being that far out of what I think is, you know, is center. Uh, so if that's still the case and I and I move it a quarter inch whichever way and it's still wanting to shoot that bullet hole, that's when I go to yoke tuning and I'll twist my yokes up because that's essentially that just might be with us being humans, obviously, you know, we're all imperfect and we have a, a different grip. Everybody's going to hold their bow just a little bit differently. So usually what that indicates to me is not necessarily am I am I over torquing the bow, but just for whatever reason, that bow, whether it's the grip, the way the riser is, whatever it is, or the stabilizer system that I choose to use, I'm making that bow shoot a little bit further right or left in the way that I'm holding the bow. So rather than, like I said, shifting my rest out to a spot that's, you know, definitely, definitely way out of center, I'll try to counteract my own torque with uh, yoke tuning. Yeah, absolutely. Like once you find a good grip, you don't adjust your grip to make it shoot through paper. You adjust your bow. And so like you're saying, I and when you were going to say a quarter inch, yeah, I was thinking even less than that. Like I want it 
I want that arrow to be in the power path of the string, you know, and so I, I want that thing to be in the center of my grip. So you're right. If it starts going out too far, then you mess with your uh, with your cam lean or your yoke tuning that you're talking about. And all you're doing is is where your Y yoke goes up and attaches to the limb. You're, you're putting more twists in it or less twists and you're pulling that cam and leaning that cam so that bow will tune differently. Correct. And, yep. and with a lot of the bows, like, uh, like Matthews, you know, for the most, for the most part, I think even all of their bows now have a floating yoke system, but Matthews, uh, one thing I really like about their system is that they, uh, they have that top hat system, which is essentially a cam shim. Now you do have to put your bow in a bow press and, and, you know, take the cams off and stuff like that. But as far as I know, Matthews is actually one of the only, uh, floating yoke systems that actually have a, uh, other than just you know, kind of getting spacers and kind of putting them in where they fit. Uh, Matthews is the only one that kind of has a, a, a really, uh, I guess, methodical way of being able to shim that cam lean one way or the other to kind of accomplish the same goal. Yeah, so like a floating yoke um, is, is where it doesn't attach to the limb. It floats like on the string, and so you can't do any cam lean. So the first time I got a Matthews in my hand, I'm like, well, how the heck do I change the tune on this thing? So yeah, I end up taking uh, you know, taking it apart, and you can change the shims to move the cam positioning, which will then make that bow tune farther inside or farther outside. What I can't remember switching the shims. So yeah, some bows you have to do that as well to, to change the tune of the bow where you can't yoke tune yep yep and then as you're shooting through like you're moving the rest in small increments you're figuring out your rip and you're trying to get it to shoot a bullet hole and then sometimes if you can't get a high or low tear out of there and you see your arrow really starting to lean downhill or uphill then then that's when you tiller tune your bow that's where um, and all the tiller tune is is you're changing the distance from the from the string to the riser either on the low side or the high side. The way you do that is by you know uh, lessening the tension on that limb, so giving it a half turn on your limb bolt or a full turn on your limb bolt. So what you're doing is you're turning your bottom limb out while your top limb is staying in all the way. That'll adjust your tiller tune and also adjust the way that arrow tunes through paper. Yep. Yep. And it's and honestly with most modern bows nowadays, um, it seems like they most companies have really, really kind of got the 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 limb bolt, you know, kind of the limb bolt slash pocket really, really down pat by now. It's 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 not very often anymore that I've had to tiller tune a bow of mine or a friend's bow as long as they're, you know, a fairly new model. It seems like I said, most manufacturers kind of have that down these days, but it is it is a possibility of something that you might have to adjust. Yeah, well, and it it also depends like every bow has its own personality, right? Two can come off the factory, but they can tune totally different. And so, hundred percent. Yeah. So 100%. sometimes you just get a bow that you keep getting a low tear in it, and like you can either fight it to death or you can turn that bottom limb bolt out a half a turn, and then it shoots a bullet hole. So it's definitely a good tuning secret to know. Yeah, a lot of my a lot of my buddies that uh, I do know that you know shoot on the on the pro 3D circuit. You know, they just about every event they go to, they carry two bows just in case they have some sort of failure, you know, some sort of catastrophic failure with one bow. They're not you're not completely out of the tournament. But every single one of them will tell you that even though you have two of the exact same bows with the exact same sight, with the exact same rest, the exact same arrow, the exact same string, exact same everything. I mean, two clones of of the, you know, the same bow that one will never tune the same way as the other. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess that's where some of the black magic comes from, right? Because, yeah, yep. they, they all have their own personality. They all want to shoot a certain way. 
Absolutely. I completely, completely concur there. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we've got our arrows figured out. Um, we've got things adjusted. We haven't moved our rest too far. We've tiller tuned if we have to. You know, another thing that we didn't mention that you always want to check is is uh, your timing of your cams. And you're just basically making sure that your cams are rotating at the same time. And I know some guys like to have their cams a little forward or a little back. But for me and my hunting setup, like I tend to set it to where both the stops on my cams hit and leave the string at the exact same time. How do you set up yours, Gabe? Yep, I, I'm... Usually the same way. Um, I nine times out of ten, I like my bow to shoot with the with the stops touching at the exact same time. Um, I kind of have a, a home fashion draw board that uh, that me and my dad built years ago, and I've used for a long, long time. But uh, it's just essentially a uh, a, a metal tee, you know, that's got a post for where the handle goes through, uh, you know, on a on a crank with a, a belt. I hook the hook to my D loop, crank it on back, and like I said, once I get real close to the uh, the stops, I uh, I have a little uh, I guess like swivel screw that I can tighten up just you know maybe another half inch, and I'll just slowly slowly turn it, tighten it up until those stops hit, and I'll just make sure that they are hitting at the exact same time. Um, that's usually good enough for me. Some people go as far as to to creep tune their bows, and I I don't know if anybody's uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the term creep tuning. And what that is, is that, you know, so you, you shoot your bow, you know, once it's all perfectly tuned, uh, you'll shoot your bow at your, at your normal anchor with your normal tension, everything. And you'll, you'll shoot at a, a vertical line on a target, whether it's a plumb bob or you use a marker or tape or, or what have you to make a, a perfectly straight vertical line. I usually use a plumb bob cause I'm, I'm definitely not the contractor type. I can't draw a straight line seemingly to save my life, so I let gravity <laughs> do it for me. <laughs> but uh, uh, what you do is you shoot, and obviously you want your arrow. It should be you know, right down the middle of that axis. And then what you'll do with creep tuning is uh, you'll take one shot where you pull against your wall as hard as you humanly can, basically try to pull the guts out of your bow and have a shot go off. And you, you want that, you know, obviously you want that arrow to stay in the center line as well. And then you'll try to get soft to where you're basically shooting that bow right off the stops for a second shot. And uh, you want that, that arrow right in the center. And I, you know, I said vertical line and I, I totally apologize. I meant a horizontal line for creep tuning um, because you want to be on the upper, on the bottom or top side of the line. So essentially if, if, if when you pull the guts out of your bow or you shoot it soft on the stops. If your arrow wants to be on the high side of your, uh, of the line, it's usually your, your top cam or your, excuse me, your bottom cam is a little bit hot on the stop. And again, vice versa. So if you shoot on the low side of the line, it's usually your top cams a little hot on the stop. So that's another way of doing it. But I, I, I just personally, I stick to my draw board. Um, you know, I'm able to crank it real slow and make a real minute adjustment to make sure those stops are hitting at the same time. Oh, that's really interesting. Like I, I think I have to do that to my indoor bow. It seems like when I pull really hard on it, I'm getting high misses. Yep, and that and that very well could be too. It, it, it depends a lot on the on the the stop too, the kind of stop you have, whether you have cable stops, limb stops, um, you know, kind of like one of those Bomar stops that actually take a ton of the surface area of the cable. So I mean, a lot of that is a little bit dependent on the. Uh, um, the kind of stop you have, especially when you're, when you're on that real, real tight shot, but more or less when you're in a really, um, 
you know, kind of nerve wracking situation, whether it be on the target line or in a hunting situation, I, in, in my opinion, it seems like I'm more prone to collapse and get soft because I'm trying to aim too much than I am to try to just pull the, like I said, the guts out of my bow. So I'm more concerned about whether or not, you know, if I give it a little bit, if I collapse a little bit, what it's doing. So I put a little bit more validity, at least in my setup when I'm soft on the stops and, and could make adjustments from there. But like I said, usually I, I usually stick to my drawboard. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and my problem is, is I get late in my shot and I keep pulling and I think I'm putting more tension on my bow and pulling hard against the stops, like harder than when the shot just breaks normally, you know. But yeah, that's really interesting. But I, I'm the same way. I don't tinker with it too much. I, I pretty much um, set them to where they leave the string at the same and I, I tend to get pretty good arrow flight out of it. And so that's that's how I roll too. Yep. And then usually just to just to kind of check, you know, my tune on my hunting bow, um, I, I kind of do a, a version of walkback tuning. Um, you know, with my 3D bow, I, I definitely do a, a walkback tune after I'm done paper tuning because I do the same thing like you were talking about is paper tuning at different distances. And the different distances, like I said, kind of tell me um, different things about um, my system as a whole. Like I said, that really, really close shot will kind of tell me what my bow is doing. And then that really, really, and not, not when I say really, really far shot, I guess I mean like, you know, the 15 foot shot, you know, into paper more tells me about what the arrow is doing. So I'll make adjustments to my arrow from there. Um, but I definitely do use a little bit of walk back tuning, um, for my target bows and then ascent. And I obviously broadhead tune my hunting bow, which is essentially the same, at least the way I do it. It's essentially the same thing as a walk back tune with my, my hunting bow is I'll, I'll shoot my field points um, up close uh, with my broadheads. And, uh, you know, obviously if I if I can get them to group up close, you know, that's a that's a good starting point. Usually they do. I, I shoot a, a, a mechanical broadhead nine times out of ten anyway, so there's not a ton of drag difference or anything like that. Um, but then I'll go to, uh, you know, a distance like, say, 40 yards, and I'll shoot my um, field point with my broadhead and I'll use my rest actually to reel my broadhead in um, on the horizontal plane um, with my field point. So I'll kind of, you know, manipulate my rest. I mean, I, we're talking minute, minute, minute movements, very, very small, because um, a dab will do you, especially you know, 40 and 50 yards, to uh, bring my broadhead in to hit with my field point. And because uh, I mean, if you can make your your uh, your broadhead group with your field point. I mean that it, you, you definitely aren't going to fluke that one. Whereas you can get, you know, a fluke paper tear sometimes a couple times and you think you've got a, a perfect bullet hole going through paper. But if, if you can get a broadhead to shoot about the same with a field point, cause obviously after a little while, if you start talking like 80 and 90 yards, obviously the, just the ballistic drag on a broadhead is going to start to make that broadhead fall off the target a little bit faster than the field point. But if you can make your, your broadheads group with your field points, you know, like I said, in that 40 to 50 yard mark, your system as a whole is, 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 is casting that arrow straight. Yeah. Uh, no, that is the tell. That's why we're going through all the work of tuning and paper tuning at different distances. So you step out with your broadheads and they hit right in the group. And, and you're right. That's like the last step for me too, is I want to shoot my broadheads with my field points and even expandables as, as aerodynamic as they are, they still will fly out of a bow different. And so they'll start grouping to the left or low, you know, of your field points. Usually once I have my bow set up, I go out and they hit right in the group. And like, 
like you said, I may have to adjust it just minor at like 60 yards. They may be hitting a little left, but you just want to move your rest then and then recite in and then shoot. But yeah, your, your broadheads to your field points and how they're flying and grouping together, that's the ultimate tell of your tuning and how your arrows are leaving your bow. Exactly. You should never really have to fight your broadheads as far like on the vertical plane, just because if you're shooting a 100 grain broadhead and a 100 grain field point, your arrow should weigh the exact same. So as long as your bow is properly tuned to begin with, um, you know, like I said, you should never get a variation up and down with your broadheads. It's always going to be a horizontal, you know, deviation. So like I said, as long as you can bring those, the broadheads in with the field points, uh, like I said, you definitely know that your system as a whole is, uh, is working. And uh, you did bring up a good point there is, uh, you know, even though most people shoot expandables, and that's one thing that kills me, uh, that's kind of a, a little, I guess, industry kind of peeve of mine is a lot of these companies, you know, put on the box of broadheads, you know, uh, fuel point accurate, you know, or something, something to that effect. And no matter what, if you have exposed blade area, no matter how small it is, at some point physics dictates that that's going to cause drag, and eventually when your arrow starts to decelerate at longer distances, you're going to notice that drag. Yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting, Gabe. I just want to circle back to that broadhead. You were saying that you only do it on the horizontal line, that the vertical line, that your broadhead should hit the same because they weigh the same. But don't you think if your arrow is coming out with a low tear, then that broadhead catches that low tear and ends up you know, making that broadhead hit low or hit eye the way it, the way your bow's tuned? Oh, yeah. No, 100, 100%. 100%. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, like I said, this is, I was just talking under the presumption that, that, you know, that you have that, you know, through paper tuning, that you have that arrow flying, you know, money out of your bow. You definitely know that there's not a, a horizontal deviation, um, with your, with your setup, um, that your, your broadheads beings that they're the same weight as your field point arrow should impact the same on the vertical axis copy i understand okay i i i heard you wrong or took that the wrong way um but yeah i understand what you're saying now yeah i think you're right and they they do like you say put that on the box as field point accuracy they're just not they just react different they're also more finicky um you know it it's tougher to shoot a tight group with your broadheads than it is your field points and not by much but a little bit yeah no a hundred percent uh in it they are a little bit they're a broadhead, obviously, because it has those exposed, exposed blade surfaces. I don't know why I can't say exposed today. <laughs> um, those exposed blade surfaces, they they are less forgiving just by nature because they do have, a, you know, they're not as aerodynamically sound as a field point. So you do for just, you know, whereas you might get away with a little bit of movement or a little bit of wind push with a field point, you're not going to get away with it with a broadhead, you know, obviously for aerodynamic reasons, Um you know, them just not being as forgiving because they do have, no matter how small, they do have a little bit of sail on the front of the arrow now. So, you know, it, it's kind of a whole different beast. They're, they're definitely a lot more finicky, like you said. Yep, absolutely. So it's just a good thing to practice with broadheads in dang near every group you're shooting as you're getting close to hunting season and even switching, you know, half of your arrows to broadheads just because they react just a little bit different. And you want to make sure that you're shooting your broadheads as that's what you're shooting at an animal. Yep, absolutely. And, um, and I, you know, I actually, when I, I, I suppose this is probably a couple steps behind that I'm kind of circling back to now, but one of the things that I try to keep in mind too, when I'm, when I'm deciding what broadhead to go with, you know, whatever year it might be, I'm kind of a, 
I'm, I'm definitely definitely somebody who likes to tinker with broadheads too. I, it seems like I shoot a different broadhead just about every year. Um, but I try to um, get a vein setup that actually, um, you know, matches that broadhead as best I can. If I'm trying a, a fixed blade or, or something with a, you know, a lot of area exposed, I mean, obviously I'm going to need a bigger vein to kind of correct that um, where, or maybe a fourth vein instead of three veins, something to try to, you know, get that bow to, to, you know, give the control of the arrow back to the rear end of the arrow where you want the control to come from. Uh, so, you know, my vein choice actually has a lot to do with my, my, my broadhead choice as well. Oh, that's a really good point. Yep. Um, yeah, the more steering you, you know, the, the bigger your broadhead on the front, the more air it catches. It's like having fletchings on the front of your arrow, and that's going to try to control that arrow. So, therefore, the bigger the blades and the bigger the surface, the bigger your fletchings in the back, like you said, to, to take control of that arrow and steer it to the target. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yep. And, but there is, you know, a point of uh, diminishing returns. You obviously don't want too big of arrows or too, excuse me, too big of uh, veins with, with, you know, maybe too gnarly of a helical or something like that, because that, you know, in with the broadhead up front creates even more drag. And you'll start to really notice that your arrows fall off the map um, when you're talking about, uh, you know, distances. And that is something that could absolutely cause uh, a deviation on the vertical axis when you're trying to, you know, group tune your broadheads with your field points is the amount of drag that the increased amount uh, you know, obviously on the front of the arrow um, with the broadhead, ex- the exposed blades, but also just in general, you know, you you try to you actually you know want as small of a vein almost as you can get away with, just on a on a drag standpoint, so that you know you don't have you don't start to lose um, you know lose speed at the uh, the further distances because like I said, you know the bigger vein that you have, the the gnarlier helical, the more that arrow is going to want to fall out of the sky. Um, but also on a noise factor, I, I don't remember, you know, who brought this up to me, but somebody had mentioned to me that um, that they think that uh, more animals jump, you know, when we say, you know, oh, the animal jumped my string, a lot of people um, are, somebody, somebody once told me that it was their belief that it's not so much the bow that the animal hears going off, especially, you know, at 50, 60 yards on a slightly breezy day. But it's more so the arrow that they hear coming at them. So obviously the bigger fletchings that you have on the back with the bigger broadhead, you know, with the more helical, the more that arrow is going to hiss coming through the air. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and, and uh, you talk a wind wind drag, so you're slowing your arrow down, so you're not getting as much energy down range, and and your pin gapping's getting getting farther and farther apart but also the wind drift out west you know yep. we always have a wind in the the bigger fletchings you're shooting the more wind drift you're going to get and wind drift like we were talking earlier can push your arrow a long ways off the mark and so you know that's also why you want to shoot the the smallest veins you can that that will steer your broadhead correctly so it's a fine line with archery you can go too far one way pretty easily over the line you know Oh yeah. Either way, like I said, there's there's points of diminishing return on both ends of the spectrum. You know, too big, too small, too light, too heavy. No matter which it is, you know, there's definitely a fine line in the middle where you where you definitely want to stick. Yep. Um, and then from there, so we've got our bows shooting pretty good. They're tuned good. They're shooting broadheads good. Um, of course, we make up our sight tape, and, and we do that by making a mark at 20, and then making a mark at 60, matching up a sight tape to it. 
Um, you know, then you test that sight tape or proof it down to the longer distances you shoot, make sure that everything's on and you can get it adjusted correctly. And then, um, I run stabilizers on my hunting bow. Do you run stabilizers on yours? Uh, yeah, actually on my hunting bow, I'm actually running a quivalizer. I've, okay. uh, I've ran that for a couple years now and, uh, I, I actually really do like it just because, you know, obviously out West, we don't really usually have the luxury of, you know, being able to take our quiver off and hang it up somewhere, you know, like a lot of people in the, in the whitetail woods do. Um, but, uh, so if I'm going to have the weight of my quiver and my arrows on my bow, I, I actually, I like the idea of them, you know, kind of providing functional weight. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the arrows being on the, the non-accessory side of my bow kind of offset the weight of my, you know, my sight and my rest and things on the accessory side of my bow. Nice. Yeah. I see a lot of guys go into those and you're right. You're, you have the weight of your arrows on there anyways. You might as well have it working for you, you know, and, and I go with like a, a tight spot quiver on that side. I like the weight and then I like to fine tune my weight. I use a, a, a 12 inch front stabilizer and a 12 inch sidebar and then I can kind of play with my weights and play with my reaction on my bow a little bit more, but it, it comes down to preference. I definitely see a lot of guys go into those. Yeah, no, absolutely. And on my indoor bow and my 3D bow, obviously I'm, I'm running, uh, you know, stabilizers on, uh, you know, a 30 inch bar out front with a 12 to 15 inch bar on the back, obviously with adjustable weights, just because I'm trying to get that bow to hold as absolute pinpoint as I can to whether I'm trying to shoot a Vegas X or a, a 12 ring on a 3D target. Um, and not that I'm not trying to split hairs with my hunting bow, but, uh, I, you just, you know, and I, I don't, I guess I'm, I'm struggling for a better way to describe it, but you just, uh, you know, with the, like I said, with the weight of the arrows that you have to lug around and the weight of the quiver that you have to lug around anyway, I just don't see, at least in, in my setup, I don't see enough of a benefit for me, you know, with a quarter inch peep sight shooting a, a non-magnified sight with three pins, you know, on a slider. I, I guess I just don't see the accuracy returns, at least for me, I didn't. Um, running a, a weighted stabilizer setup. So, you know, the, the equivalizer, equivalizer made sense to me. Yeah, and, and like you say, it just comes down to preference and how your bow reacts and how you can get that weight on that, that equivalizer and get it set right. So, man, I'm with you. It all comes down to preference. I, I get a lot of benefit out of mine by adjusting weights on the front and back, you know, to help with the hold and, and hold as good as I can, but also to help with the reaction of the bow. Like if I'm getting low hits, you know, that I can I, I can pull weight off the front of my stabilizer, or put some on the back, and that seems to take a lot of my low hits out. So, like I say, it's it, to each their own, and yeah, it. I, you know, I see some benefit in it, or like you say, it may even be placebo. But uh, it's I like tinkering with bows, so yeah, I, I mess with it a little bit, and and uh, think I get some benefit, anyways. And and you and you very well might. And even if, like you said, it is it is a placebo. I mean, archery is such a mental game that if you if you think that your that your setup is the cat's meow, and that you know that it's going to hit where you point that pin that arrow is probably going to go where you point that pin, you know, as long as it's, you know, obviously well-tuned and everything else. But, you know, it's a, it's a very mental sport. If you, if you go into any shot, whether it's paper foam or an animal, and if you go into that shot with the slightest doubt that you're going to miss, more than likely you're going to miss. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. Yeah. I could use some placebo in the hills. Like, like just walking around with that belief in your bow that, you know, you can make that shot. That can, that confidence is so powerful. 
it, it really is. Like I said, archery is a super, super metal game. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, you get these bows all set up, and then, you know, it's important for me to continue to shoot through season, and I love shooting at the trailhead. Like, if I got a target in my truck or I'm hunting, I love to just proof it because – you know, bows, we've we've got strings on there. They they react different to different temperatures. Um, you, you know, maybe the humidity or elevation if you're hunting high elevation. And so for me to walk around with that ultimate confidence, like I want to send an arrow before I walk out on the hunt. And it's not, it's not always possible, but I try to always have a target in my truck. And if I ever get any downtime or if I can when, right before I'm leaving the trailhead, I love to fire a few arrows downrange and go, yep, she's on. 100% I'm with you there. I Every every hunt I go on, I try to have a, a target in the back of my truck. And uh, same thing, before I hit the trail, I'm definitely putting one or two arrows down there. If I, and when I say one or two, uh, you know, it could be three or four, but I mean, if I, if I shoot a money shot that I feel like I held good, the release broke good, and that arrow ends up in the center, I don't, I, that's what I want to end on. Like, Yep, I'm going up to the I'm going up the mountain with that image in my mind. Like that arrow hit perfect center. We're good. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, always good to proof your bows. Um, and, and it's just like the more time you spend on that hunting setup, uh, just the more confidence you're going to have in it. Uh, the more forgiving setup you're going to make. So, you know, if you if you do make a slight mistake in your form or, you know, it's so tough in the mountains when you're shooting, just the, the downhill angles or your feet are uneven. It's just so different than being in flip-flops in the backyard, you know. So um, I, I just like to spend a lot of time on my setup and get it shooting as, as absolutely as good as I can and then walk around in the hills with confidence knowing I can make that shot. No, absolutely. And I, like I said, I try to make time. I mean, obviously I'm going to go to real competitive shoots, 3d shoots during the year with my target bow, you know, as I'm trying to compete in them. But like I said, I definitely make time to try to go to more hunting based, uh, 3d shoots. Whereas like, you know, whether it's a local shoot or maybe, um, the total archery challenge or something like that to where I can put my feet on uneven ground on a mountain at elevation, at least some elevation. And, uh, another big thing is, is that, you know, you can take your bow and practice your hunting bow. You can take your hunting bow and practice in the backyard all you want, shooting at a, you know, a block target or, or whatever you have, but it's usually a spot on a target. You know, whether it's a red dot or a black dot or whatever, you're still shooting at a circle on a target. Whereas I, I you know, I mean, I'm a big believer in practicing how you play. And I think, you know, obviously animals, for the most part, don't walk around with spots on their vitals. So for me, it really is important to try to try to shoot at something that, you know, is, is, is going to be like what I'm going to shoot at in the mountains. You know, like I said, just because, and, and you can talk to a lot of competitive archers and, you know, they'll get real in tune with the, you know, with their indoor setup in the beginning of the year and they'll struggle their first couple 3d events because they're so used to aiming at a dot. And now you take that dot away and it turns into a whole nother game. So I'm definitely a big believer in, you know, shooting at 3d targets or at least something that doesn't have spots or rings or something that you can see on it to better simulate, you know, your hunting situation and where you need to be aiming. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, aiming at animals is huge, and it's a different hold than aiming at a dot. And so shooting those 3D targets, yeah, it seems like every season I'm buying a new 3D target so I can have a 3D to aim at a deer. And, yeah, it really helps. And and also, you know, sometimes the 3D targets don't 
don't teach you to aim at the right spot. Me with my short draw length, I really have to make sure I stay away from the shoulder. So my shot on a on a 3D target, I want to be three inches off that that shoulder bone to ensure to give me a little room for error. So that way, if I miss towards the shoulder, I still get them. If I miss the other way, I get liver. And so, you know, I think it's also important to train your brain to aim in the right spot. I see too many guys that aim in that pocket nonstop, and that pocket's a great shot when you hit it, but you sure don't want to hit on the side of that shoulder. Yeah, the shoulder shoulder side of that pocket shot's no no good. No matter, you know, I mean, even if you're shooting a, a monster draw length and a ton of weight, you know, I mean, you still don't want to hit that shoulder by any means. No, especially but, uh, not yeah, no. like on an elk or something like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, but you did touch on a good point there is too is that you know I mean even on those 3D targets the rings aren't always aren't always where you you know would actually want to put an arrow especially you know some targets you know they're you know a lot far back sometimes in my opinion or or a lot too far forward I've seen that too but yeah just just being able to get out and and shoot it you know a solid looking target that doesn't have that you know i mean usually you know when you're shooting your hunting bow you usually aren't running magnification or anything like that so usually those 3d targets once you put them out you know 40 50 you know even 30 yards for me i mean it's a it's usually can't really see the rings you know so it's just you're holding on you know the you know agree i completely agree with you you know you're trying to hold a couple inches off that back side of that shoulder you know trying to execute a money shot without having something necessarily to to really rest your pin on other than, you know, the area which you know you want that air to go. Yeah, just solid brown or solid hair, right? And be yeah. able to hold it there without a pin holding you there or yeah, with a, a without of, a dot. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, especially when they, like I said, just when they transition from dot shooting to, you know, whether it be 3D or hunting, I think, it, you know, a lot of people catch a, a little case of target panic from it just because they don't have a clear reference point of where their pin needs to float, you know? Oh, I think you're right. Um, so you probably got some good hunts coming up this year. Um, you're located there in Nevada. You got to have some good mule deer hunting down there. Yeah, no, we, uh, we definitely have some, uh, some real good, real good mule deer in, uh, in Nevada, real good mule deer opportunities, especially on the, on the resident side. I've, I've never really, uh, never really, I have, I haven't ever applied as a non-resident. I have, I've lived in Nevada most of my life. So I've, uh, I don't really know what that's like trying to get drawn out here as a non-resident, but yeah, as a resident, you definitely have some, uh, some good opportunities, um, with some good units, you know, where you can turn up good bucks for sure. Yeah. There's so many great little isolated mountain ranges down there and, and they can be tough to harvest a deer in there, but you've probably got some pretty good high country hunts. Did you do one, uh, last year in Nevada? Yeah. Um, I actually drew a, a unit that I, I really didn't know anything about. Um, so Nevada is a, is a point system like most of the Western States. Um, you know, it's a, a lottery draw point system. So if you put in, you know, you get up to five choices in Nevada. Um, and if you don't draw any of your choices, you'll get a preference point for the next year. But I, I really just like hunting the state. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to draw one of the premier units out here and and, uh, you know, have a, a lot of opportunities that, you know, some good deer, but I just love hunting out here so much that usually I'm willing to, you know, sacrifice that to try to draw every year. Now, granted, I'll still put those premier units as my first and second choice, but, uh, I'll put fairly easy to draw units that have, um, uh, you know, some wilderness area in them or, or not very accessible, you know, areas in them as my, you know, third, fourth and fifth choice. And it seems like the last few years I've, I've drawn my, you know, third, fourth, and fifth choice. And, uh, you know, honestly, I've just had a blast out here, you know, trying to figure out new countries, seeing new things. And, uh, and honestly, there hasn't been a, a unit 
so far in the, you know, like I said, it's probably been about five years since I've drawn my first choice. But even in those four years um, where I've drawn my third, third, fourth, and fifth choice, I uh, every year I've consistently been able to to get on a buck that I consider a trophy. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, they're uh, so beautiful there too, and you guys get such good seasons. Like they let you hunt alpine mule deer when they're supposed to be hunted. Like uh, they they let you hunt them a little bit earlier, so they you know the before they shed their velvet, before they go into their secondary living. It's it's like um it's, it's what I'd like to try to talk every state into is is an August tenth opener, an August fifteenth opener. You know, I, I I just think it's such a great season to hunt high country mule deer. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, it's, it's, it's nice tent weather, you know, I mean, you don't have to usually, I mean, you know, you got to, you have to ride out the occasional thunderstorm because, you know, the Nevada weather, especially at any kind of elevation in August is, can, can fluctuate pretty crazy, but usually, you know, I mean, you know, it doesn't get too cold at night. You don't have to bring a huge sleeping bag or nothing like that. You know, you're usually, uh, usually fairly comfortable out on the mountain. Yeah, no, it is nice weather. Other than your guys' lightning, that state is electric. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, very it's, electric. yeah, it's so dry, and I think you get some of the storms off the Pacific or something, you know, that come through there. But yeah, it seems like that. that you really gotta be uh, lightning safe in that country because it comes in nearly every afternoon. Yeah, and like I said, I, I definitely, I definitely enjoy being out here in Nevada just because I do have an opportunity, at least as a resident, like I said, as long as I play my cards right, I've drawn a tag just about every year I've applied. And uh, like I said, I drew, I believe it was my fourth choice this last year, which was a, a new unit that I, I had never even set foot in. I, I just, I actually saw it driving to um, a family uh, Thanksgiving dinner the year before we kind of I kind of saw some mountains kind of off the freeway in the distance, and I thought, man, I wonder what unit that is. I ended up doing my research. It was a fairly easy-to-draw unit and uh, ended up getting back there and hunting it. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a grind, definitely. Uh, you know, I definitely had to – I put in probably 14 days probably scouting. I mean, thankfully, it's only about 180 miles from my house. Um, but I was, you know, just about every weekend I had in July and the end of June, I was out there um, – you know, scouting for deer. And I ended up finding a, a pretty good buck that I, you know, guess would have gone in the, the mid to upper one seventies, which, you know, is a, a definite trophy class buck in, in my book. And, uh, actually did get a play at that buck and, and, uh, you know, just couldn't, couldn't quite find exactly where he had bedded down and, uh, stepped on a little loose gravel at the absolute worst moment. And he was probably about 15 yards from me and got up and bolted. And I never was able to relocate that buck, but just being able to to go to a new unit, uh, you know, get up there and, and, uh, you know, get, get hunting and, uh, being able to find a buck that, like I said, I consider, you know, a trophy buck and being able to make a play on them like that was, you know, definitely worth my price of admission this last year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Love hunting those bucks like that. And those stocks, they're just, um, they're so methodical and they're so thrilling, it seems like, but yeah, just one wrong step, you know, with that, with that gravel and, uh, you know, you can be so precise with your foot placement, but it, it just seems like the country, you know, dictates the noise. Like, you um, you be as careful as you can, but at any moment, yeah, that ground could give way and be loose and send a rock rolling down the hill or a little scuff and that deer's gone. But, man, those things are so fun to hunt. So did you have his exact bed when you moved in on him, or you just knew he was in a patch, or how did that work? So, so what happened was, is actually we, uh, a buddy, a couple buddies of mine, we actually drew the tag. Uh, we actually didn't even apply together. We applied separate just because we, you know, we kind of had different ideas of where we wanted to apply this year. And we all ended up drawing the same unit anyway, which was 
kind of comical. So I was sitting up on the side of the hill with a, a couple of buddies, and we watched this buck and uh, two other smaller deer um, on the side of this hill that we were glassing, and they, they kind of made a bank over not necessarily the horizon of the of the hill in front of us, but they kind of kind of turned the corner, if you know what I'm saying, um, around the backside of the hill to where we couldn't see them. So we, you know, boogied around this drainage to get to the other side to where we could get a vantage point on top of them. Um, and again, we caught them going right over to, uh, to this little, little patch of junipers. And, uh, you know, they kind of got into those junipers and, and disappeared, but you know, they never came back out. You know, the sun kind of got to about the middle of the sky. So we knew that they had bedded in there somewhere and it wasn't a very big patch of junipers. I'm talking maybe, you know, uh, if I had to guess maybe 80 square feet of just a little patch of junipers. So they were, you know, definitely in there somewhere. So with the, with, you know, the wind in Nevada is also kind of touch and go, you know, it can go, it was blowing perfect for a stock down to them at the time. But I knew that any point, you know, especially with it being the afternoon and the thermals kind of dying down that that wind could switch any minute. So I decided going to try to get too close until I uh, kind of had eyes on them. Well, the entire time I was paying attention to those junipers and I cannot believe that three deer with the shade of those junipers being right there, that they actually didn't bed under the junipers. They were bedded in sage. And on top of my mind blown that they, you know, didn't actually go up into those junipers to hold up. I just couldn't believe that three deer in low lying sagebrush, you know, maybe, you know, two and a half feet tall, that three deer blended in so well to that, that little clump of sagebrush that I never saw them until I was right up on top of them, essentially. Uh, just sounds like a mule deer, right? They could just blend yeah. in into thin air and just disappear in that open sage, can't they? Yeah, and I, I don't know where they were getting their shade from, but, man, they, they seemed content where they were. I, I said it blew my mind. Ah, wild. Yeah, those things are just destined to win um, a lot of the times, that's for sure. Just the way they set themselves up and where they bed and how they bed and um, with the wind, uh, we got a lot working against us. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely no walk in the park. Definitely hunting uh, hunting the high country mule deer. It's it's you know I've I've never had one walk in the park in my uh, God, I've been hunting them since I was probably 14 years old, and I still haven't had a walk in the park. <laughs> yeah, never easy. They make you earn every single one. Well, Gabe, I can't thank you enough, man. It was really fun to talk over tuning, and I I learned a couple things from you that I know I'm going to put in place with my hunting bow. And I just think it's important information to get out there to guys and and help them, you know, set up the most forgiving setup they can, or at least learn more about their bow and how it's set up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, I completely agree. If I, you know, if there's any bit of knowledge that I could give back as far as, you know, uh, to this podcast, because like I said, I you know, I mean, I've definitely. Uh, you know, not quite the stone cold killer that, uh, that, you know, you or a lot of the guests that you have on are, um, but I've learned a ton from this podcast and I think I've, I've benefited a lot from it. And, uh, like I said, if I, if I could give anything back to the, you know, the Eastman's elevated community, it'd definitely be a couple, a couple tips, you know, as far as bow tuning goes. So I'm glad that I was given the opportunity to, uh, to come and, and hopefully share a little bit of knowledge that might help somebody down the road. Man, how cool. Yeah, uh, thanks a million, Gabe. It was really nice to meet you. We'll have you on again when you kill that big buck out of Nevada this year. Sounds good, Brian. I look right. forward to it. Okay. All right, guys, that's a podcast. Uh, thanks to Gabe. Um, really fun conversation. I just really enjoy diving deep down the rabbit hole at different 
different subject matters and especially on on bow hunting or on archery and um so to learn how gabe does things and and his beliefs or theories in in setting up bow and then to be able to ask questions on tuning and and why he does what he does uh, is really interesting to me and and it's all about you know gaining that knowledge and becoming a better archer and and being more effective and more efficient in the mountains like i say Every backcountry bow hunt, you know, every successful backcountry bow hunt will come down to making a shot. You have to make a shot to punch that tag. And and I know there'll be some tough shots that come up this year or that'll be an extreme, you know, or a, a high degree of difficulty where I'll have a chance to make a shot and punch my tag maybe on a trophy critter or probably on a trophy critter. And it'll come down to whether or not I can make that shot. And that'll come back. To, to my knowledge base of archery, how much I've practiced all year in, in executing that shot in the crunch. And I just, I thrive under that, that pressure, that, that opportunity. And so, um, yeah, I'm really working on my game and making sure I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the absolute best shooter I can be this season. And so spending a bunch of time with my bow and, and, uh, a, a bunch of time messing with the, with the different tunes of my bow and just making sure that I have the absolute most forgiving setup I can get. Um, so good information to get out there. Really appreciate Gabe being on, uh, again, our sponsor for today's show is tech new, um, poison Oak poison Ivy. Make sure you've got a bottle of this tech new, uh, in your medicine cabinet, so when you do get into that stuff, uh, this will take away the oils. Also, take away skunk smell, uh, take away sap. Uh, it's just a great product. Um, Technu, they, um, yeah, oh, there's this funny story of Ike uh, Eastman that tells his story, and he had, Technu's been a sponsor of Eastman's for a little while now, and, and uh, he was driving his wife's car, and it was his wife's white Suburban, or maybe I don't have the color right, but anyways, driving her rig, and it's like this brand new rig and so he's driving it and it was wet out like these puddles and he drove through this puddle that a skunk had died in and it sprayed skunk juice all over the car and he could not get the smell out of his car it was everywhere it permeated it splashed up on the bottom of the car on the side of the car he finally ended up giving his car a full bath in technu and that's what got rid of the smell he said he thought he was gonna have to sell the car but uh anyways pretty funny story but um yeah technu just a great product uh thanks to those guys for sponsoring the podcast um yeah, and over there at Eastman's, um, just putting out some good podcasts. I'm just trying to to uh, get really good conversations with guys and and pick their brain. I got some really good uh, elk calling ones coming up, and got some good guests there, and and uh, just overall content to make us all better bow hunters. Um, uh, it, it's just uh, we're a we're a community of guys just trying to get better, and and uh, I'm I'm definitely trying to get better at my end of things, uh, thinking quick, and and also. You know, trying to understand, you know, what what makes us better and, and what what questions to ask, what information to gather, you know, to to make us all, you know, better bow hunters in the end. So anyways, uh, doing that. Gosh, turned in an article for Eastman's. Yeah, good podcast coming up. I think that's all I have. Um, had a really good day shed hunting this past weekend. Um, I don't have a lot of time right now. I, I wish I had more. I used to just love shed hunting and I, I kind of got away from it, putting all my focus into bow hunting. But, you know, if I've got a free day, I should be out in the mountains and, and that just, it pushes me to do those really long tracks with tons of elevation, tons of miles. And I'm in the mountains carrying a pack and, and 
also just being in the mountains makes me happy. Like that's a, it's a fun place to be, to challenge myself and, and, and be with nature. And then you've got a bonus of hopefully finding a nice six point horn if you're lucky. So, um, had a really good day Saturday. I think I got five Saturday and it's still early. Um, four of them were all really nice big six points and then, you know, one kind of, uh, younger five point, but still it was just a, a great day of horn hunting. I got the other side to, a to a set that I had and it was one of the bigger bulls I'd found this season. So anyways, it's been really fun just, uh, charging the mountains and trying to get these legs in shape, get ready for bear season and, uh, still getting my runs in and my training and definitely getting my shooting. I am really focused on that bow this season. There isn't a, a day that goes by that I'm not firing arrows down range and just trying to work on different things. And then, um, you know, not just, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll set up my, my bow in the beginning and set it up how I like it and mess with it a little bit. And then it's good to go for season. And I spend a little bit more time just fine tuning things and, and revisiting things on my bow and, you know, going, well, what if I, you know, what if I, put a twist here and time this cam different you know what's that do for me just just messing around with things a little bit more just trying to take take my game to the next level so all right that's podcast i'll check in with you guys next week thanks as always for all the support on the podcast the the itunes reviews uh those things really help me out and then um the social media the the uh I can't remember what social media I'm on, but the <laughs> I want to say iTunes. I don't know uh, because I was just talking about reviews, but uh, the Instagram and Facebook and things. So um, trying to put out consistent content and keep on it, and then still have a still have a normal life, or you know, get everything in, finding my balance, spending time with family, getting my work in, getting the the podcast stuff done, working on my archery, getting my runs in, horn hunting in my free time. And then also I've got about four construction projects, you know, a, a big house I'm starting and things. So uh, plenty going on here. I just need to get all this stuff taken care of by the time August, September rolls around so um, I can uh, just go hunt. So that's the goal. All right. Thanks, you guys. Talk to you soon.